Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This podcast is some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Markets Close show that I co-anchor along with Romaine Bostic and Caroline Hyde. What you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. History and science suggest a second winter with the coronavirus will likely be worse than the first. This week, we saw New York City's daily death rate of positive tests hit more than 3% for the first time in months. A potential surge of cases could upend a rebound in consumer confidence that has started to take shape, potentially throwing a wrench into the economic recovery. Any surge could lead to possible lockdowns either officially by the government or unofficially as residents opt out on their own to stay home again. The economic data seems to be turning a bit, but we are still at a delicate stage. We got reaction on that consumer data from Tyler Goodspeed, the acting chairman and vice chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. Well, we were certainly very encouraged today by the consumer confidence numbers. As you noted, this was a very substantial increase from from 86 to to 101.8. Uh, in the overall index. But but looking below that, looking at the expectations, we actually saw a big, big increase in consumer expectations. Uh, and actually, the, the level of that sub-index is now at a, at a higher level than it was at any point in the 12 years between July 2004 and November 2016. And in particular, consumers are expressing greater optimism about business conditions and the labor market. So that is definitely very encouraging. Uh, But you're right that that there's a a long way yet to go. And that is why the administration has remained committed to achieving bipartisan legislation that can pass both houses of, of Congress and that the president can sign into law that would provide another round of economic impact payments, that would provide a reload of the Paycheck Protection Program, that would provide Uh, some targeted uh, enhanced unemployment insurance benefits for unemployed Americans and that would would apply uh, funds for for schools to safely reopen. Uh, So we're very much hoping that that gets done. But nonetheless, we you know, this this has been a tremendously fast uh, recovery thus far. Uh, I think if you'd ask any of us back in March or April if we would be in this situation today, I think even the most optimistic among us wouldn't have expected that. And the right. nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, even just a couple months ago, was expecting a year-end unemployment rate of 10.5%. Yeah. So we've really smashed those expectations. But so there's Tyler, a lot of work yet to do. Yeah, so Tyler, I mean, it has been a pretty fast recovery. There's concerns about it stalling out, of course, with the idea that with unemployment levels still where they are and with, I guess, some of the fears that um, with COVID not 
quite being sort of beaten back yet uh, that you could see, if not necessarily lockdowns, you could see some people kind of uh, just not really go out and spend money in the ways that we would expect them to. I am curious, though, as to with regards to the administration's efforts right now to encourage that type of economic activity, beyond just the fiscal stimulus, um, what are you guys talking about there within the White House that would sort of create, I guess, a little bit more stimulus outside the bounds of whatever Congress might, may or might not pass? Well, as I said, we're definitely focused on the things that can help schools and businesses safely reopen, because that is going to facilitate the fastest labor market uh, recovery that we can that we can hope to achieve. So that includes a, a second round of the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, employee retention tax credits, things to really help this this labor market recovery continue at the pace that we've observed thus far. And just to put this in perspective. In four months, we have, we have regained 50% of the jobs lost in March and April. Uh, in the aftermath of 2008, 2009, it, it took 26 months to regain 50% of the jobs lost. And, and really, the, the recovery in the aftermath of 2008, 2009 was just unprecedented in its weakness. It took 77 months, that's six and a half years, to regain the employment levels that, uh, at, at the peak in 2007. Uh, and that was that was just historically unprecedented. So we are we are just in in very good stead right now, and uh, and we're focused on on what we can do to sustain that unprecedentedly fast recovery that we've observed in the four months uh, to date. One fundamental difference, however, but of the job losses in this crisis versus the last one is that these were explicitly temporary in many cases, de facto furloughs while the uh, crisis, while the virus was expected to have passed. Meanwhile, permanent uh, unemployment has continued to rise. The number of people saying their job loss is permanent has uh, risen throughout this crisis, hasn't started turning down yet. And I'm wondering if you're concerned about sort of the um, permanent scarring to the economy, sort of the, the long-term negative effects from business closures, permanent unemployment, the difficulty it will be post-crisis to sort of rebuild the full productive capacity that we had. So I think you, you touch upon a very, very important point, and, and that's about the, the temporary of 80% of the job losses, estimated 80% of the job losses in March and April were expected to be temporary. That is not accidental. That is the right. result right. of a very strong pre-COVID economy. Uh, right. You have a 3.5% unemployment rate. That means you have some very high quality employer-employee matches. When you have the highest labor force participation rate uh, of the previous expansion, that means that you have a lot of active labor force participation, a lot of people actively searching for work, so you don't have that atrophy of skills when people fall out of the labor force. So we really, we really studied uh, the aftermath of 2008, 2009, and we learned from that what not to do. And so in, in, in March, when we passed the CARES Act, we focused uh, on the, the Paycheck Protection Program, focused on an employee retention tax credit, focused on aid to small businesses to try and make sure that we could help firms get through this crisis uh, and retain those employer-employee matches so that those layoffs in March and April would be would be temporary. So I think it's it's a testament to the response of the federal government to that shock that most of the, the losses in March and April were expected to be temporary. Tyler, uh, so later tonight, uh, your boss is going to be on stage making his case against Joe Biden for a years in office. I am curious, when we talk about the economic recovery and uh, Trump's plan, I guess, for the next four years, should he win, um, do we have a sense here 
uh, with regards to the policy positions, that the recovery will be equal in measure. And I'm, I mean that with regards to uh, the differentials that we've seen with regards to black and white employment, black and white wealth, the gender gap, et cetera. What measures are being taken to make sure that everyone in America participates in this recovery? So that's an excellent question. And I think uh, when we look at the record of the Trump administration, the deregulatory policies, the tax policies, which we hope to continue and expand upon uh, in, a, in a second administration, when you look at the record of that economic policy agenda, the record is unequivocal. Inequality declined during the three years of the Trump administration. Inequality declined in the two years following landmark tax reform in, in 2017. And it declined however you measure it, whether that's wage inequality, wealth inequality, whether that's income inequality, whether you're looking at the Gini coefficient, the ratio of, the, of income growth at the 90th percentile to the 10th percentile, 80th percentile relative to the, to the 20th percentile. Uh, so I think the, the, the economic data is unequivocal that the policies undertaken by the current administration help to attenuate uh, issues of inequality in this country and, and at the same time deliver gains, real economic gains that we have simply not observed. In one year alone last year, in 2019, the typical American household experienced real income gains that exceeded that of the previous 16 years combined. I, th I think that is just a staggering statistic that has not received sufficient coverage in the past week, week and a half since that report came out. This week, we also focused on a potential new round of stimulus and if it will be too late for the economic recovery. City and state budgets have felt the financial pain of the lockdown tied to COVID-19 and the continuing work from home environment and new data on New York City shows the flight of workers in the surrounding counties. We spoke with NYU Stern School of Business Assistant Professor of Finance, Arpit Gupta, about his data. We used mobile phone data provided by VanPath to understand how many New Yorkers actually left the city and when did, it, when did they do that. And so we find that as of the middle of July or so, about 15 to 20% of the population of Manhattan has actually left this is a really striking aspect of migration that we're seeing in response to COVID that really dwarfs previous patterns uh, and kind of shows the possible vulnerability of cities in the wake of pandemics such mm. as this. So I, I, I'm just curious, though, here, Arpit. I mean, there is a lot of evidence here uh, that people are leaving or at least relocating. There's also some evidence here that some of that could be temporary. The idea here that um, I, I guess once you do finally get past the, the COVID crisis, there's a vaccine or at least some assurances about safety, uh, that these offices will fill back up and these apartment buildings will fill back up. Is there any evidence that you're seeing statistically that would support that? Absolutely. So I think the cities that so far seem hardest hit do include New York as well as San Francisco. And some hard evidence that we can look to point at that would be evidence on real estate prices, which do seem to be slower in these major cities relative to others. So for many other cities around the country, we haven't really seen the same real estate impact as in the largest, most expensive cities, which would suggest that the more permanent moves are more likely to be contained within those largest urban areas. You know, it's obviously an extraordinary uh, exodus that we've seen. And of course, we'll, we'll know maybe over the coming months, how much of it was temporary people going to some other uh, place versus a permanent move. 
But I'm curious in your view, I mean, we already know that a lot of uh, people had been leaving for cheaper areas and that some of these cities that are booming, like whether Nashville or Austin or Denver, these were hot areas prior. Do you have a sense of like how much this is just new behavior versus, say, pulling forward uh, my moves that might have happened over the next five years anyway? I think you're absolutely right. A lot of these moves, whether they're further out into the suburbs or towards these fast-growing Sunbelt areas, are likely pulled forward demand. However, even that would have a stark change in how cities actually function. So even the, in the 70s and, 70s and 80s period, for instance, we saw some parts of that pulled forward demand really change how cities actually function. And it's possible that those changes in the future would also make a drastic difference to what it's like to live in New York on a day-to-day -day basis. So, Arpit, I think it's fair to say that all three of us sort of uh, live very fortunate lives. And when we talk about the ability to move, uh, there are a lot of us who can sort of pick up uh, and choose where we want to live. There are a lot of people out there in New York City who don't necessarily have the financial means uh, to be able to do that. And I'm wondering if you have a city where the only people sort of left behind are, are lower income workers and workers who are unemployed or people who simply just have fewer options, what kind of city does that leave? I think you're right that this pandemic is highlighting the inequalities in a much starker way than we've seen previously. And what we find in our research is that workers that are staying behind are more likely to be essential workers and people that continue to commute to the workplace, which exposes them to greater risk of actually contracting COVID. So obviously we're talking right now about the stimulus and one of the big sticking points this idea of aid to city, cities and states, and of course, uh, the Democrats are much more for it. Republicans are much more skeptical. For New York right now, how pivotal is this? I mean, is this a situation where if they can get a big, if New York can get a big infusion of aid, then it can maintain essential services and sort of halt the, uh, the exodus? And if they don't, then it could be the kind of exodus that really becomes self-sustaining, leading to damage for a long time to come? There is a risk of that negative spiral because the city for a couple of decades now has really relied on those wealthier individuals who have delayed and postponed those moves to the suburbs, which has provided the tax base on which we've been able to provide essential public services. And as more people leave, these services, as you say, will be cut back in ways that will encourage more and more people to also leave the city. And the city that is more of young people, which may be good for the city in various ways, but without that same level of tax base, you, it's going to find it harder to kind of support that high income population. So then this brings the government back into focus, the city councils, and to some extent, the state governments as well. And I guess what some people see as potential competition kind of arising, the idea that mm. uh, certain governments that have more favorable uh, tax schemes or better city services might be able to attract people at the expense of others. Yeah, I think that would be very healthy competition. And those other cities are going to find that with new availability of work from home, they're going to be able to attract different kinds of workers than they were able to previously. So I think that's very healthy competition across the country. So what are the next areas? I mean, like I said, I've been uh, on Twitter, you track a lot of different things. You've been sort of looking at the economic impacts of this crisis from the beginning. What are the key areas right now that you think policymakers need to get a handle on in terms of both the economic impact of this crisis as well as the health impact when thinking about the next set of policies, be they at the federal level or the uh, municipal level? I think two key areas, one of them would be the local government angle that we mentioned before. 
I think the other thing that I'm watching very closely is what happens to commercial real estate. Because we all know that many aspects of commercial real estate have been hit very badly in this crisis. We've seen large waves of delinquencies among tenants, and we're not quite sure where that's actually going to lead to. Are we going to see more foreclosures? What's going to happen to commercial real estate in general? I think this is going to be a very critical area to watch. And when you talk about uh, looking at commercial real estate, I mean, you're primarily looking at, I guess, uh, you know, people who are going into offices or you're looking at commuting data or is there more or can you sort of look more at some of the retail side uh, spending uh, equation and get a better sense of maybe whether we are, I guess, you know, actively participating in the city and this economy? Yeah, it's about all the major food groups of commercial real estate. So office, retail, um, uh, apartment buildings, industrial, lodging, and so forth. So we've seen a huge divergence even within commercial real estate across these different areas. So multifamily and offices are doing much better, whereas uh, retail and lodging are doing much worse. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. This week, despite headlines of meetings and talking, stimulus talks here in the U.S. seem to be lacking a breakthrough. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin met, but no deal was announced on a new relief agreement. Meanwhile, investors continued to bid up stocks. The S&P 500 and Nasdaq are in the green for the year, despite all the economic upheaval which has led to one of the biggest cliches in 2020, that there is no connection between the stock market and the economy. So this week, we put this cliche to the test, first with Nathan Tankis, research director of the Modern Money Network and publisher of the newsletter Notes on a Crisis, who thinks there's less of a disconnect than people think. Um, I think it was, for me, it's an important question because it is part of a broader question, uh, argument about our macroeconomic debate. Um, a lot of the kind, what I would say is the, pe- the people who are the most hawkish on monetary policy um, and maybe to a lesser extent fiscal policy tend to be hawkish precisely because they think that monetary policy is much more about the stock market than it is about anything else. And I don't want to say it has nothing to do with the stock market, but um, if, if a, a decent chunk of the benefit that is happening that is happening for the stock market is running through sales growth, then that's much more of a direct uh, connection to right what's going on with the real economy and uh it's a more complicated question than if if it was all just uh fomenting speculation on the stock market um it would really open the question about whether say lowering interest rates is 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 a is a policy tool that is um 
worth more than the trouble it brings. So break it down for us a little bit more, Nathan, with specifically with regards, I guess, to uh, kind of the returns that we have seen uh, in the market. I guess we can use the S&P 500 as, as a proxy here, uh, that the returns that we've seen there and kind of how that syncs up uh, in, in your argument with uh, the broader economy. Yeah, so I think my, my the broader way that I would frame this is that um, the stock market isn't the stock market index. And I think these often get very conflated because, you know, you know, you're doing, you know, daily coverage. You have to have some sort of measure that you're referring to um, to give people a rough sense of what is happening. And that's all reasonable. But the problem is when we get into these kind of longer uh, term conversations where people are still using this headline stock market number as the benchmark when you really kind of have to look under the surface. And in general, I would say indexes tend to destroy a lot of information. You know, reducing you can't really reduce these phenomena down to one number. And I think in the stock market case, we really strongly see an example where the the headline stock market number isn't really telling people what the, uh, the information they need, especially in something like coronavirus, where you're having you know radical changes to uh, what sectors are experiencing what level of sales, both of course on the downside, but also on the upside. Right. So, for example, we know because we talk about this all the time that the S&P 500 is not anywhere close to a representative um, measure of the economy or even of all businesses. It's heavily weighted towards a handful of gigantic tech companies whose businesses are just doing extremely well in this environment. Yes, exactly. So, you know, you have tech companies that are predominantly the companies that are experiencing those uh, 20 percent plus uh, year to date sales growth. Um, they're going to drive the stock market there because, you know, the way these stock uh, indices are constructed, you know, they, uh, their market capitalization grows up. They, they go bigger in size relative to other sectors. Other sectors fall because they are experiencing uh, declines in sales. And that means they take up right. an even bigger part of the stock market. So inherently, with the way stock market indices are constructed, they are biased to pick up big players who are growing big quickly um, and to underweight the losers. The losers are, by definition, if you're losing, you're becoming a smaller and smaller part of the index. So you really have to, you know, do, you know, as, as I do in the article, uh, start from the, the beginning of the year um, or have some other way of breaking down right. uh, what's going on, for example, by sales growth to really see what's going on with the losers. And so then, Nathan, does that sort of get you to the stage then where if you're trying to sort of get uh, some, I guess, discernment of where the economy might be going, that you can actually reliably use uh, some of the stock market indicators, not necessarily all of the indexes that we normally use, but some of those indicators as, I guess, a proxy for where the economy might be headed? Yeah, absolutely. I think if we if you break down stock market data and if it's not just the headline index number, you can get a lot of information. And and also by breaking down the number, we can see that the holes that the stock that that the holes uh, that the stock market has and the holes become more obvious and then we can adjust for it in our thinking. So obviously, by definition, you're going to get the largest companies. But when you see that the losses are concentrated among the companies with the smallest um, uh, stock market capitalization, then, you know, it's a pretty safe, especially with other right. other information we have, that there's, you know, losses are even bigger um, below the below the, uh, the public company level. And I think that, you know, that also goes for foreign sales. So one thing that your work establishes is that, okay, if you look at, a, you know, break it down and it's hard to see that there's some egregious bubble. That being said, 
there's a sort of less aggressive form of the disconnect claim, which you might agree with, which is that as good as the stock market do, is doing, it certainly may not reflect the, say, position of the typical American uh, worker during this crisis. Absolutely. I mean, I think that you know, very, very clearly, you know, uh, or, you know your, your earnings will benefit if you lay off a whole bunch of workers in stagnant demand. You know, otherwise your firm productivity, measured productivity will fall off because you just have some workers hanging around um, and, you know, you have to pay them. Um, but you see that all the time. Um, you know, if people, people – my problem is not so much with people saying, you know, the stock market is disconnected from the experience of the average worker. My problem is – um, with them uniquely asserting this stock market disconnect for what's going on now um, and associating it with some monetary policy thing when that's true all the time. I and mean, when, mm. you know, when you were under the Volcker era and interest rates were 20 plus percent, um, stock market was very disconnected from what, what workers were experiencing at that time as well. But, I mean, this is just an ever present thing. And you know, I read a bunch of pieces to make sure that I was arguing against the best forms of the argument, and none of them are making the case that the stock market is disconnected all the time. They're specifically focusing on these on these areas and, and emphasizing this sort of monetary policy distortion. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. And then we got the other side of the debate with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Nir Kesar. Well, I think that it's important because it puts it it puts this idea that there's a divergence between the market and the, you know the broader I call it the broader environment. It's not just the economy; it's the political landscape, the social landscape. It really puts it in perspective. You know, a lot of people want. I think it seems to me they want for there to be a connection. They want the stock market to reflect the broader environment. But I think what that chart shows you is that there's never any, it, mm. there's never uh, a relationship between the two. The market does what it does because it's looking at a completely different set of criteria. All it cares about is the public companies that trade its stock. It doesn't care about the government, big important parts of the economy. It doesn't care about. It doesn't care about government spending per se. It doesn't care about small business. It only cares about its companies. So we should stop looking uh, to the market as a gauge for these sort of broader phenomena. Okay, I'm going to get the White House on the phone uh, for that near. Uh, in, in all seriousness, though, there is sort of, I guess, a general sentiment factor here. The idea that we all want to sort of be able to point to something that is that sort of barometer, a real-time barometer, if you will. We don't necessarily have those real-time barometers uh with regards to economic data, not the way we have it with this day-to-day -day swings in the market here. When you look back at the data, particularly when we came out of major crises like the recession and uh, the World War era uh, from years ago or the hyperinflation era of the 70s, um, what did you find with regards to the correlations? 
Well, that's an interesting. It's interesting to point that out, actually, because one of there are there are times when the market can be useful in that sense, because often the market will sort of signal a recovery or a decline before it actually shows up in the larger economy. So if you're if you're looking, for example, um, you know, say say that the current environment we're in now, um, you know, if you're looking to the if you're looking if you want some sort of real time gauge to tell you when we might be come out, coming out of the coronavirus funk or when we might have come out of the financial crisis or whatever, the market can be useful for that. Because when the market turns, it usually turns months in advance of the of the broader economy. The opposite is also true. When the market falls apart, it's usually telling you, not always, obviously, but it's usually telling you that there's going to be a deterioration in corporate earnings. And in general, that deterioration is caused by some larger economic event. So in that sort of narrow sense, I do think, Romain, that there is some information that markets can be useful for. Do you think that's changed over time? Because one of the things that strikes me looking at this crisis is that if you look at some of the real-time economic indicators that everybody's become fond of looking at, whether it's mobility or you know open table reservations or whatever, a lot of it did bottom that last week in March, that first week in April, basically uh, roughly when the stock market bottomed. And I'm curious if over time, perhaps you think there's uh, the market is losing its sort of is less predictive and more of a real time uh, concurrent indicator. I really think it depends. And you talked about this with your previous guest. I think it really depends on the structure of the market. You know, sometimes the market represents sort of a broader swath of the economy because of its market cap uh, weighting than it does at other times. Right now, you have three companies that are close to 20% of the S&P 500, which is what generally people refer to as the market. So I think it really depends on the moment, on the type of market that you have, market structure. But um, having said that, I think there, I think you raise a different point, Joe, that I think is also valuable, which is that there are, we, we, you know, with things like Open Table, there are other forms of data, which some people sometimes refer to as alternative data, yeah. that we now have that is even better than the market because it's really speaking to the economy writ large rather than just a handful of companies. And so I think in that regard, the, the, the stock market is actually going to become a less and less important barometer of the broader economy than it has been historically. Which will, to some extent, make this conversation move. And so with that type of data that, that, that you're referencing, uh, this uh, kind of high-frequency data uh, that, that people seem to have been latching on, particularly in the COVID crisis, is the idea here, though, that that data at some point could be aggregated in a way where it could sort of become more of a singular barometer, or is it just going to be kind of fragmented and people are going to have to figure it out on their own? You know, that's an interesting thing to think about. I would imagine, you know, this is a guess, obviously, but I would imagine that at some point we will find a way to aggregate this data into some sort of composite, you know, just like we have leading indicators that are really a composite of various data points. I would imagine that at some point that becomes that will we will have that as the as the uh, data becomes more widely available, as more people look to it as a barometer that they probably a lot of them probably don't even realize that information is there right now. I'm curious, you know, just in the last segment, we were talking about how, you know, it's kind of hard to say anything from the headlines because you have indices like the S&P 500 dominated by a handful of uh, big tech stocks. I'm curious if in terms of finding economic signal, it might make sense to look at some of the more classically cyclicals or some of the areas like banks or energy or some of these areas that really don't have a sort of secular growth aspect to them, but then whose fortunes seem more uh, clearly linked to uh, just GDP and the economy's growth in general? You know, it's a fine idea. um, And I will will say that I think in in the work that I've done, it seems to me that as you go deeper, as you cut the market into 
thinner slices, the information actually gets worse, not better. And I think the reason for that is because it's very difficult to know how different sectors are going to do in different environments. Um, if, if you just look at the banking sector, for example, um, you know, the, the banks did great in the late 1990s. They did pretty well in the aughts before the financial crisis. Then, obviously, because it was a financial crisis, they fell apart. But then in the subsequent recovery, you know, banks have really not done well. Right. Um, and so if you were looking at any particular sector, um, you, you know, you would you would have to deal with the idiosyncrasies of how that sector is doing relative to the broader economy. And those things are very difficult to gauge. So, as you know, the problems, you know, acknowledging the problems that we have with the broad market, I still think that's a better barometer than mm. looking into uh, sectors individually. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.